episode 10 of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and this is a short clip from today's main interview. I think most of the troubles in the world come from that kind of suppression, repression, cutting off. Mm. There is almost nothing we can't deal with. Mm so long as we are actually openly engaging with it because if it's yeah. in our lives this is this is personal belief but i really do strongly believe it if it's in our lives it's there because it's supposed to be there yeah. and you know we're not supposed to be doing a deep dive away from it we're supposed to be yeah. turning around and slowly carefully mindfully looking after ourselves at the same time really important um mm. engaging and seeing that kind of what's in our way. This is a, a beautiful line by an, an Irish poet, Mary O'Malley, what's in the way is the way. Yeah. And um, I love that. I love that thought. That was the voice of Orna Ross, who is an author, a poet, and for her sins, the director of the Alliance of Independent Authors, which is a worldwide organisation that brings together authors who've decided to take the self-publishing route rather than the traditional publishing route, uh, guiding them through the publishing and marketing process, helping them with legal guidelines and all that kind of stuff, putting them in touch with services such as graphic designers like me and other people. And Orna, I've actually known for a number of years, uh, but this has been the first opportunity I've been able to sit down and have a proper chat with her. And the reason I brought her onto the show today is because she is an amazing uh, and highly intelligent woman with lots of fabulous ideas about creativity and flow. Uh, you may recall a few episodes ago, I interviewed Dan Holloway, who's also a bit of a creativity guru. But Orna's approach is really quite different and brings into play a number of more philosophical aspects, if you like, into the act of creation. So that's my interview with Orna Ross coming up a bit later in the show. Now... As the podcast numbers into double figures, episode 10, I thought I'd uh, talk today about uh, a recent lived experience. Um, I've obviously occasionally dive into different topics and different aspects of psychology and different therapies and that kind of stuff, but I've recently had a fairly uh, dramatic experience, which I thought might be worth passing on um, because we all get taken by surprise by the onset of powerful emotions from time to time, unexpectedly. And um, I think it's worth us talking about, thinking about how we can cope when these things arise uh, and obviously last time I talked about different uh, methods you can use when strong emotions arise and I can tell you that I in this instance had to use every weapon in my armory to try and recover from what happened. Um, 
I'm recording this on Tuesday the 16th of November 2021 and uh, this thing happened just a couple of days ago. Uh, funnily enough, um, after a very pleasant evening I went out with my partner and uh, she and I had a lovely time. We went and saw the new James Bond movie actually, the last one with Daniel Craig in No Time to Die, which I'll recommend. Uh, not for everyone. It's uh, it's not just traditional Bond, bang, the bad guy's dead kind of stuff. There's and it's one of the reasons I like Daniel Craig as an actor. He brings a new kind of feel to the Bond role, a new kind of emotionality, and so on and so forth. But anyway, we had a lovely time and came home and we had a takeaway pizza. It was all very nice and we were just I was just channel hopping really and thought, oh, what's on and went onto Netflix and was kind of flicking around and um there was a there's a movie called The Dig which you may or may not have seen and uh, my partner and I said oh I think we've heard of it. I think it's supposed to be good isn't it oh yes it's about the discovery of the Sutton Hoo treasure in Suffolk uh, just at the beginning of the second world war in fact 1939 and it we we've started watching it it was a beautiful british made poignant movie starring Ralph Fiennes and Kerry Mulligan and Lily James and others and um, key to what I'm about to talk to you about it stars a, a young lad called Archie Barnes who plays the character of Robert uh, the the lady whose land on whose land the Sutton Hill treasure is found Edith uh, is ill she has a heart condition and um, Archie Barnes plays her young son Robert who's about hard to say in the movie nine or ten years old something like that and towards the end of the movie about half an hour from the end uh, it's clear that his mother is very ill and worsening her condition is worsening and he uh, reacts to the sight of his mother's deterioration with understandable emotion and he runs outside and he bumps into Ralph Fiennes' character who's uh, the the archaeologist Basil Brown, the excavator Basil Brown who's kind of in charge of the Sutton Hoo project. And he just utters a line that I have to admit totally floored me. And the line is something like, um, when my father died, because his father had died when he was even younger, several years before, when my father died, people said to me that I had to look after my mother. And I failed. Now, um, this is, <laughs> had a discussion with, my best friend yesterday about this and we said and we agreed that you know that's almost a movie trope isn't it that when uh you know uh, particularly a young man their parents die or one of the parents died particularly the father well you're the man of the house now and you need to look after your mother it's almost a trope the thing is because it was delivered by this young actor archie barnes who's who's almost exactly, in the movie at least, he's almost exactly the same age as I was when my father died. And I 
it leapt out of the screen at me. That is almost exactly, word for word, what people said to me when my dad died. Oh, you're the man of the house now, Henry. You're, you need to, you've got to look after your mum. And that struck me like a knife to the heart. Um, had it been delivered by an older actor or in a different way or by a different actor, one of the adult actors, I, it may not have struck me in quite the same way. But coming out of the mouth of this young lad, who even looked a bit like I did when I was that age, it completely poleaxed me. And I'm still, I'll be honest, I'm still sitting here as I record this, still feeling emotional when I talk about this. And for certainly for, you know, for the rest of that Saturday evening and a great deal of Sunday and uh, a chunk of yesterday, I've really, really been struggling with the overwhelming wave of emotion that that line in that movie at that moment evoked um, and of course I'm not unique in this I'm just a human being this kind of thing can happen to anyone where suddenly I mean my, my dad died 50 years ago 50 years I'm 60 now he died when I was 10 50 years and that line echoed across five decades with absolutely undiminished power and um, I now now I've calmed down and thought about this a bit um, I've got a pretty good idea of which adults it was that said those things to me when I was a little boy and obviously, you know, it was also a sign of the times that that's the kind of thing people said because they didn't really know what else to say other than, well, you know, you may be a 10-year-old boy, but now you're the man of the house and because I don't have any brothers, um, I'm, you know, you're the man of the house and your mum's a widow now, you need to look after your mum. And for all sorts of reasons, I'm not going to go into specifics, but for all sorts of reasons, I was never able to look after my mum. I mean, obviously, at the beginning, I was a 10-year-old boy. What was I supposed to do? You know, what, what can a 10-year-old boy do to look after his mother? Hang on a minute. That, that's all wrong. We talked about transactional analysis. Obviously, at that time, I was very much a not-okay child. My father had just died. My mother was the parent. Not me. I, I knew nothing about parenting. You know, my, my, the only examples I had, my mum and my dad, well, my dad had certainly been ill for the last couple of years of his life and hadn't been around much. And my mum was effectively already a single mum, working hard, long hours to look after me. And I was, you know... It looked, you know, looked after in some ways, not fostered, but looked after by neighbours, um, friends of the family, the parents of other kids at school whilst my mum was working, you know. And then later on, uh, I 
you know, moving into my teens, obviously I was a schoolboy and did what I could around the house. I was a bit of a latchkey kid because mum was working such long hours. Uh, did my bit for the chores around the house and so on and so forth. But, you know, what do we mean by you've got to look after your mum? What does that mean? And I think this this flags up a number of things that we, in a situation of abandonment or grief, when it's around young people, children, we need to be so, so careful about what we say to them because what we say to a child of that kind of age or younger lives on with them you know this is a at a time of grief or problems in the family that young person is emotionally highly charged and as we discussed last time when it comes to transactional analysis you know that that inner parent is, if you like, a verbatim recording of everything that's said and done around us in our early years. Certainly for the first four or five years. And, you know, I, I would submit from my own personal experience that evidently there are other things that go very, very deep even later. As I say, I was 10 when my dad died and that line just came like a guided missile from 50 years ago with all the power that it had then and it exploded inside me right now, you know, a couple of days ago. How extraordinary is that? I think we probably all think that as we get older, we get more separation from what happened to us as, as children. Uh, I'm sitting here as living proof that, whoa, that's not always the case, is it? And perhaps you've had experiences of your own where suddenly, you know, out, totally unexpectedly, out of left field, you're watching a movie or a TV program or listening to a podcast or a radio program or reading a book or whatever it might be. And you hear something, or perhaps you smell something, because obviously the, the olfactory memory is there as well. You know, you can, I know I've had moments where I've smelt a perfume that's like, oh my goodness me, I think that's the same perfume as my mum used to wear, for example. That can just gallop across the ages and smack us down like a cavalry charge out of nowhere so how do we deal with this how, how have I been dealing with what's happened to me in, in recent days where I have to admit there was <laughs> it it was like you know people who go fishing for big fish like sharks or tuna or whatever they use that great big hook thing to called a gaff to get th those big fish onto the boat and I just felt like I had been gaffed that this line in this movie delivered by this young lad just gaffed me and hauled me out of my nice, calm, having a nice time, adult mode 
straight with no defense into not okay child mode. I'm 60 years old, but you know, I'm I'm not ashamed to admit and I think it, we have to talk about these things that I was completely kiboshed and tears flowed uh heaving sobs just as if I was reliving the loss of my father all over again and that sense of abandonment and as I say very much that not okay child and interesting I was talking to my wonderful therapist perhaps I was lucky I had my therapy session organized for, for yesterday and talking to my fantastic therapist Vanessa who's just you know she's the embodiment of compassion and she reminded me of a line uh, from a book by Tara Brack, which is, pain times resistance equals suffering. Pain times resistance equals suffering. So what that effectively is referring to, yes, okay, we can try and Oh, oh, I don't like this. Oh, I'm going to stick this pain away in a cupboard. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'll deal with it later. I'm just, oh, no, I'm going to resist this pain. I'm going to re resist this pain. But if you, if you do that, if you avoid undergoing the pain now, you can end up suffering for much, much longer. You can end up having this thing just boiling away on a back burner for however long you leave it and the longer you leave it the worse it can get pain times resistance equals suffering so I knew I had to deal with this and it suddenly you know having just recently <laughs> just recently uh undergone a massive catharsis about the loss of my father actually I ended up writing a letter to my father expressing my feelings about losing him and my sense of abandonment, my sense of loss and that kind of stuff, which was very, very cathartic and very, very useful. And I had been thinking, oh, OK, you know, the, my relationship with my mum was much more complicated. So I'll leave that for a bit. I'll leave that in the box and deal with that later. And this happening now is just like, bang, no, 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 no. You are not going to leave that sitting in that box. You are not going to put it in that pot on the back burner. Quite clearly, this one in a million chance of what, what were the chances of just happening to choose that movie at that moment and be sitting there and it had that line in it delivered by that young boy that was so evocative, so powerfully emotional for me. But what it means is, well, to mix more, more metaphors, the cat's out of the bag now, isn't it? It means that any thoughts I may have had of delaying my processing of the loss of my mother and her illness and my you know, complicated relationship with her over the years, which, I'm, as I said, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but let's just say, like many people's relationships, perhaps particularly with their mother, it's complicated. And I've got a lot of baggage to deal with but I know that now <clears throat> is the time to do it and and the extraordinary thing is you know had this happened 
even two or three months ago because of the journey I've been on in the last year. Whoa, I may not have been at all ready to deal with it. I have only recently emerged into calmer waters for all sorts of complicated reasons. I've only recently just realised, you know, whoa, and understood an awful lot that's been going on in my life, not just in the last year, which has kind of been a critical time, but for a long time. And the discovery of transactional analysis just literally in the last month or so has been an absolute revelation. You know, there were moments in the past couple of days where I have thought, wow, I'm not sure I can cope with this, where I have been faced by those old demons because that line, you know, the little boy was tasked with looking after his mother and I failed. And I've got to tell you, that's pretty much how I felt about the situation with my mother, who developed Parkinson's disease and towards the end Alzheimer's and for all sorts of reasons I was not able to look after her in the way that I would have wished to and some of that was you know my own shortcomings but some of it was also my mum who didn't want to be looked after uh, in perhaps the way that I would have liked to. She was fiercely independent, uh, some might say just bloody stubborn, and was very proud, that's for sure, and uh, didn't that because of that generation she was from, didn't want to make a fuss, didn't want to put anyone out. And so um, didn't end up having the quality of life that I would have wished for her. Um, and so just revealing that much, I think, shows how complicated these things can be. And if any of you listening to me have got elderly parents who particularly once their, their mental faculties start slipping, I'm fairly certain you understand what I'm talking about. That that is the frustration of being the child of an elderly parent and the emotional turmoil that that can cause. And so what I now realise is how much that contributed to the devil on my shoulder that I told you that I'd been carrying around for 50 years. I'd loathed myself, I'd hated myself for decades. And all this fed into that. This situation fed into that because I constantly felt like I'd been given this task. It just sat in my subconscious. Oh, yeah, you, you, you've got to look after your mum, Henry. And I just kept failing. What does that do to you? Well, you can probably guess, can't you? What it does is it evokes that not okay child within you. You may put a gloss on it. You may do a, you know do your best and be avoidant and stick it away in a cupboard and try not to think about it too much but there it is festering away and every time something comes up you're reminded you're a failure you failed you're rubbish you can't even look after your own mother you're crap and that just fed into this thing that i've described before this kind of self-loathing that i developed for all those years 
And in the last couple of days, yes, of course, that, whoa, it came bubbling to the surface again. There it was, trying to jump back on my shoulder, trying to tell me, there, I told you, you were crap. And it has taken a great deal of inner resource to send it away again. Huge dollops of self-compassion. Uh, huge, uh, you know, borrowing the life raft of mindfulness, trying to create distance between this, as I say, this massive tidal wave of emotion, giving myself the chance to pause and breathe and separate myself, my now adult self, from that tidal wave of emotion, giving me the chance to think about, okay, where's this come from? What's actually happening? How can I actually deal with this? Breathing. Yeah, I tell you, I've, I've almost worn out the car map in the last few days, listening to, uh, you know, various 10-minute meditations and calming music and that kind of stuff. And yes, it's all helped. You know, it's very easy to go, oh, goodness me, no, that's rubbish. Do you know what? It actually has helped. And in fact... As I said before, the transactional analysis of understanding that what's happened is this has brought my inner child to the surface. That parental voice of those adults, relatives, they were now passed away, who said to me, oh, you've got to look after your mum. And realising, yeah, that's the kind of thing that parental people said in those days. They didn't think about it. And nowadays, it would probably not be allowed. You, you, people are more aware that you don't say something like that to a 10-year-old kid who's just lost their father. You, you, you just don't say that. It's grossly unreasonable. But it happened to me. And it may have happened to you or to someone you know. So, as I say, massive dollops of self-compassion. This is not my fault. This is not my doing. This is something that has come rushing to the surface after all these years that was nothing to do with me. I was powerless. This is not my fault. And separating myself, my inner self, you know, just because I'm having this emotion doesn't mean that that emotion is me. It's, it's a powerful emotion, absolutely, but it is just an emotion. It is not me. I am a thinking, intelligent, adult being. And I can and will overcome this and get past this. And the resilience, the amount of resilience one has built over the years as well, always helps because you know, however awful this feels, I've overcome worse and will do again. So it's just a reminder, folks, that, you know, you might think, oh, he runs this podcast. He must be a very fixed bloke. No, I do my best. But stuff like this can still happen. And if it happens to you, know that by doing the work, you too can have the resources to get over it. Thanks for listening. And we'll be going to the main interview now. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon or Spotify. 
You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head, where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you. section of episode 10 of Inside Your Head. And today I've managed to get someone on the show who I've been trying to get on for ages. And I ha we have to kind of admit we have a connection that goes back quite a long time now, actually, uh, because of uh, one of my other lives uh, in the field of writing and self-publishing and graphic design and that kind of stuff. And that's how I originally met this amazing woman and you're going to hear just how amazing she is she's a, a woman of many parts and uh the person i've got on the show today is none other than orna ross hello there orna hello henry thank you so much for having me i was brilliant i'm so pleased you just you you were able to come onto the show and um I should point out that you are, as I said, a, a woman of many parts. You're an author, you're a poet, you've been an academic. And the reason we met is because you created an organisation called the Alliance of Independent Authors, which is how we met, because as a disgruntled, traditionally published author, uh, when I came across your organisation, I thought, oh, uh, hang on a minute, this sounds quite good. And you could talk about a bit about that uh, in a moment. But could you just um, tell the listeners a bit about yourself, where you're from originally, you know, a bit about your, you know, where you grew up, a bit about your education, a bit about your career up to the point when you then decided to launch this international organisation? Sure. Um, okay, I'll give you the potted version. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very old and this could take <laughs> up the whole show. <laughs> but yeah, I grew up in, as you can hear probably from my accent, grew up in Ireland, in the southeast corner of the Republic of Ireland and um, educated there. And then I went to um, college in Dublin uh, to UCD and did English literature and uh, you know my intention was and uh, H dip in education my intention was to become an English teacher because oh, that right. was as far as my mind would go because yeah. for young women then and it's really hard for people to 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 understand this but really you were very limited in what was made available to you and what you thought you could mm. do so for somebody of my kind of um age and upbringing I was going to be either a teacher or a nurse if I was lucky a secretary or or something like that and they were your choices so while I looking back realized that my dream was to be a writer I didn't even get as far as articulating that to myself so went to university did did English lit and history and um then couldn't get a teaching job. It's a big, long story. Ireland at that time was was 
things were really difficult and um, I ended up going into industry and then quickly kind of coming out and admitting to myself that I did what I did actually want was to write and again my imagination would only go so far so mm. you know I couldn't conceive of being a poet being a, a novelist yeah. that was what you know dead white men were poets and novelists <laughs> <laughs> in Ireland you know yeah. Oscar Wilde, W.B. Yeats, George yeah. Bernard Shaw you know um, all the Nobel laureates these were the people we were fed all the time there was yeah. a picture a tea towel it used to go around saying, you know, great Irish writers, every single one of them was a dead male. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the way it was. So um, my mind went as far as journalism and I thought, well, I could write mm. features with newspapers. They could pay me and, you know, maybe I do some short stories on the side. Don't tell mm. anyone. Couldn't even admit it. Um, my then partner, now husband, um, was the only one who knew and he was mm. super encouraging and I did journalism for a while and then as I approached a big milestone birthday I thought okay what you really want to do is be a novelist so yeah. if you're going to ever do it do it so I started to do that and then a friend of mine uh, died and in the bereavement I turned to writing poetry and I've been writing fiction and poetry ever since so that's right. kind of how I how I became a writer in between to make a crust I ran a writing school um, part of the writing school, we were our students were getting contracts and the contracts were terrible. I got really mm. kind of irate about that. So I trained in rights, publishing rights and right. started to have an interest in publishing, worked as a, an accidental literary agent, I used to call myself. And then, right. yeah, um, and that's what I was doing up to 2008 and 2008 I had one of those years you know your queen called it her Annas Maribolus I had yeah. one of those in 2008 I got cancer um, my business partner and I started to not see eye to eye at all mm. um, just one thing after another happened my husband took redundancy that wasn't altogether a bad thing but it was a huge thing because yeah. we still had young children well teenage children and so on. So um, I took a step back. I thought mm. that, you know, this, this is too much. I, it's what's going on. I'm in a washing machine. I need to, just to, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to, to, to get onto the rinse cycle. So um, yeah. I, I took a step back. And when I came back in, oh, yeah, in between, sorry, I should have said, I eventually managed to get the novel, my first novel published after 54 rejections. Wow. On the, on the 55th attempt, I got a lovely two book deal from Penguin. And that was like, I thought that was my high point. That was 2003. Yeah. Actually, mm. part of my horrible year in 2008 was the realization that I was going to be parting ways with my publisher because we had serious creative differences. Right. So, yeah, I took that step back and then just rested, just wrote poetry, just wrote for myself, gave up mm. writing for publication. And then um, when I came back, there was this thing called self-publishing, which mm. I didn't think would be for me, but I gave it a go and was immediately, you know, I suppose transfixed by what was yeah. now going to be possible for authors and, mm. and founded the Alliance. Yeah, uh, that's an extraordinary journey there, uh, Orna. Um, fellow c cancer survivors, of course. I know uh, that. And I know 
from my own experience in the last couple of years, whoa, that can change your attitude towards life and what you want out of it and how you feel about what's going on. So huge respect to you for what you've managed to achieve since then. Um, I'm also interested in a couple of things because you, 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 you did English literature and history. And of course, your novels tend to be historical novels about what I think can only be described as lethal families. <laughs> right. Do you want to say something about that? I prefer to call it intimate conflict. <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm Irish, so family has to be part of, of what you write about. Yeah. Um, yes, historical always for me. I Nothing in the present activates my imagination, but walking mm. down an alley that's a couple of hundred years old and I'm off. Um, yeah. History is, is my inspiration. And I'm hugely interested in in how people did things differently and what mm. remains the same. And yes, a family is, is, a, is yeah, I think every, yeah, every book I have written is about family mm. and probably always will be because, and not because my family is particularly toxic, I have to say. I mean, <laughs> we're typically toxic, <laughs> but not excessively so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, in, in that we have our, our good times and our bad times. We have good sure. relationships and, and not so good and, and that sometimes with the same person but you know I I was a very lucky person I mm. I had loving parents and I have loving siblings and um you know my dad is now deceased but all uh, nonetheless the things that went on in mm. in our family you know is an endless source of inspiration as well so my yeah. first novel for example was about um my was inspired by the shooting of my great uncle in the irish civil war wow and what that war did to irish families and mm. friendships um you know when i was growing up 50 years later that was very live and mm. so i grew up in a blanket of silence around certain things my father just would not discuss them he had the you know the irish man's cure go for a few drinks yeah. and forget about everything and uh, so that's fascinating to somebody who wants to write uh, you want mm. to know what happened and I could never find out what happened. So I made up my own version of events and <laughs> um, a, a very long kind of yeah. multi-generational saga type type novel. So, yeah, that and those things continue to inspire me today. Mm. I'm currently writing again a what has turned into a long series about the poet W.B. Yeats and his relationship mm. with Maud Gaughan and her daughter. So the family dynamics, again, are mm. what interests me there. Not the great poet and the usual stories we hear about him, but mm. the family dynamics with the two women and how that affected him um, is, is what's interesting to me. That's absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, it appeals to me because obviously I, I've got a history degree. And so, I, you know, I've, I, I can remember being taught about, you know, 1916 and all that. And uh, now I'm learning so much more about psychology. Your description there of the men, you know, the avoid, highly avoidant men who wouldn't talk about stuff. But, yeah, we'll go down the pub and that's their way of coping with how they're suppressing so much stuff and of course we know and I'm sure this happens in your novels that at some point this stuff tends to bubble up to the surface one way or another and the longer you leave it the more dangerous it becomes so that fascinating fascinating now the other thing you spoke about 
was poetry and how kind of poetry, writing poems, sustained you. Now, this is really interesting because I know from my own experience, I mean, my, my poetry is mostly rubbish and yours is beautiful, I have to say. But uh, I've certainly found it, uh, and I look back now when I used to just sit down and write a lot of poems, as a, as a form of catharsis, as a way of getting emotions down onto the paper. And there's something rather wonderful about uh, a structured poem that kind of captures exactly what you want. It's almost like less is more. And I know you write haiku as well, don't you, Orna? Do you want to talk a, a little bit about poetry? Because I think actually, particularly poetry, has a, a really important role to play in terms of people maintaining maintaining mental health. I know that a lot of people recommend journaling, and I journal as well. Uh, but there's something really potent and powerful about capturing feelings in a poem. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, very much so. I mean, you you put your finger right on it there. Um, poetry is about condensing. So, well, you know, as a novelist, you spin and as a poet, you condense. That's how I think of it. So and poetry is about one thing one theme a chosen moment and it is the body of work that in a sense can capture life whereas in a novel you can within that one work capture mm. you know but the moment of course each individual moment and this is what haiku has taught me and mm. and i know you're a proponent of mindfulness and meditation as am i and when mm. you engage with that practice you realize that each moment contains everything and a poem is like that, the best poetry. I mean, that's what you aim for. You only hit it every now and again. You know, you write a lot of dud ones to get a good one. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, we poetry comes very natural to us in our youth and adolescence. We as kids, mm. we, you know, we love rhyme. We love song. We make up words. We, we mm. throw them around in our mouths. We put them out there. We don't, you know, nonsense stuff and stuff that that um, we like the sound of and as teenagers we pour our hearts and our passions out onto the page and then boom it's like yeah. this drawbridge is is drawn up when we mm. reach adulthood and I actually believe we should if we all kept writing poetry we would all be much the better for it and yeah what stops us, sorry to say this, Henry, but what stops us is that sentence you just said there. My poetry is rubbish. <laughs> yeah. It really isn't. Yeah, it really, really isn't. Um, yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, it's you have to allow yourself. It's 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 one thing to say. And I, uh, somebody, as I said earlier, it took me years to be able to say I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. um, it took me many, many, many more years. It's a very recent thing where I've been able to say I'm a poet because it mm -hmm. really does sound pretentious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and it really does sound, it's just very hard to say. And, yeah. and that's because poetry does express something in a very particular way. It is a mm -hmm. very rich form of communication. It's a very deep form of communication. Mm -hmm. And so you can't write poetry and not, not open your soul and open your mm. heart and that's the thing about it and that's you know it's a real it's an act of bravery to mm. to write a poem and put it out there and you know sometimes sometimes I find I still find no matter you know I, I put poems out very regularly because I, I use mm. Instagram for my poems to put the pressure on to keep the poems mm. coming and mm. um, still sometimes I'm I kind of quail and I, I feel mm. oh, really nervous about putting something out there, but I make myself do it. 
It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, songs effectively are poems as well. And people love singing, love songs. It's strange how people can feel a bit mm, uncomfortable about poetry. This is a kind of obviously a cultural thing that, that as you say, emerges post-childhood where poetry is the most natural thing in the world. Nursery rhymes we brought up on poems, you know, wonderful things. And then at some point, people get a bit queasy about, oh, that's really expressing that emotion really quite powerfully. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I might think about it in private, but ooh, I'm not sure I'm happy talking about it. And the interesting thing is, uh, I was listening to a, a podcast by a, a wonderful uh, woman uh, yesterday, actually, who talks about, she's a therapist, and she talks about trauma and uh, the interesting way that people can get queasy if you start revealing, you know, oh, I had a breakdown, oh, I suffered some trauma, and oh, 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 I don't mind listening to it, so long as you're cured now, so long as you're fine now, that's all right, I'm happy, to, as long as you're not actually going to get me to think about, you know, what you've been through. And I think that's one of those things about poetry, isn't it, that it can really encapsulate incredibly powerful stuff about love, about loss, about grief, and so on and so forth. And in many ways, is one of the purest forms of attempting to express the almost inexpressible right uh, and so i think there's a an interesting parallel there between you know conversations that i'm having with people these days about mental health and we've got to talk about these things we mustn't suppress them and poetry which is actually a rather exquisite way of encapsulating some of this meaning i mean you got any thoughts about that order yes i love i love what you're saying and i really would encourage people to and it's one of the reasons um, that i do write poetry and i'm involved with the poetry community on instagram mm. and um, under the hashtag indie poetry please every second day i put out a, a poem by uh, another poet and right. often younger poets and and people who are are by younger poets I, I'm not talking about their age I'm talking about the fact that they haven't been writing for very long mm. it's just so important as a vehicle of expression and writing generally I think you know I like you I'm hugely interested not just in writing as craft which is one mm. thing completely but in writing as a form of expression I'm a proponent also of free writing um, mm. you know, uh, and anything that enables us and encourages us to just put the thinking mind aside for a little while yeah. and allow the, you know, the the feeling mind and, you know, our other senses to to rise up because they are so wise and so mm. powerful and can teach us and tell us so much if we can stop the noise in our heads yeah. and hear and feel what other parts of us are saying and yeah. I think most of the troubles in the world come from that kind of suppression repression cutting off mm. there is almost nothing we can't deal with mm. so long as we are actually openly engaging with it because if it's yeah. in our lives this is this is personal belief but i really do strongly believe it if it's in our lives it's there because it's supposed to be there yeah. and you know we're not supposed to be doing a deep dive away from it we're supposed to be yeah. turning around and slowly carefully mindfully looking after ourselves at the same time really important um mm. engaging and seeing that kind of what's in our way. This is a, a beautiful line by an, an Irish poet, Mary O'Malley, what's in the way is the way. Yeah. And um, I love that. I love that thought. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk some more about this kind of stuff in a little bit because uh, we're already sort of touching on some of the stuff that you're involved with, which I find absolutely not just fascinating but inspiring and bringing in some of that kind of philosophical aspect of stuff that is really important has become so important to me as well in my life you know and that's been a revelation to me but let go on let's the elephant in the room is like hang on i'm sitting here talking to the woman who created the alliance of independent authors which for anyone listening who doesn't know is now a worldwide organization a collaboration it's difficult to know quite how to describe it of self-publishing creatives i think we can say now because it's broadened its remit so much you know it's not just people who sit down and write novels or sit down and write history books it's you know it's expanded into so many areas as we as individual creatives have done you know here i am sitting here creating podcasts now when i started out years ago as a magazine editor and copywriter and that kind of stuff um so this extraordinary organization now which i goodness knows how many members it's got i joined it when it was still relatively modest i think uh, a decade ago or whenever it was tell us about this beast you created this <laughs> <laughs> monster that keeps keeps growing this big lovable hairy monster um yes thank you for being a very long time member henry it's great so, and it's lovely and back in those days you're absolutely right i i i knew a, a lot of our members and now yeah. that's impossible unfortunately um yeah so what happened picking up where kind of left off on the life story was I mm. sub, I self published my own book a little poetry pamphlet first then I got my rights back from my publisher self published my novels and I really you know I think because I had worked as a literary agent because I had an interest in publishing I'd worked in media as well in newspapers and stuff I I really did see um immediately that this changed everything for authors, that authors were now no longer going to be, you know, there was a, a period of time where the author was an artisan, say in Shakespeare's time, you were a playwright, like a wheelwright, you know, you made plays. And then there was the romantics and the artist, the author as artist, you know, with this imagination, generally given to white males only. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and all of that artistic passion and, and so on. I love the romantic, lots about the romantic movement, but there is also a lot of stuff that has kind of made us feel that was the only way to be a writer. Then in the 20th century, you have the kind of the professionalism of writing where you, you know, got your university um uh, placement as a you know professor of creative writing or whatever or you got a job in a poetry journal and that kind of kept you going while you did your own writing or whatever it might be but you were part of the establishment you were a gatekeeper you made it you had got in and the, and the mm. hordes were outside yeah and then what was clear to me was immediately oh self-publishing is going to change authors from being artisans artists and um professionals into being business people yeah and that is a huge gap because authors don't think of themselves in that way lots of authors loads embrace it but lots of authors don't want to think of themselves mm -hmm. in that way but they're self-publishing books and they have gone into business whether they realize it or not whether they want mm -hmm. to have done that or not and so the enormity of the change was what kind of really struck me 
And I went looking for an organization to join to help me to navigate my own journey because it, yeah. it was so much in it, so much, you know, technical stuff to learn, so much. Mm. Um, it's just learning, learning, learning day after day after day. Everything was different. I was so glad I'd had that rest before. <laughs> yeah, <crikey>. <laughs> <laughs> I really needed, uh, which is really funny how life, how life does things, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, I looked for an association to join and couldn't find one that was doing mm. things the way they needed to be done as I saw it. And then I had a very dark night of the soul. Do you really want to do this? You know, mm. you've just had cancer. You know, you said you were going to just write your own stuff and stop mm. looking after everybody else's. Mm. You know, uh, I closed the writing school for that reason. I had let go of the literary agency to my my business partner. And I had um, I had decided I was going to write full time. There was mm. only one problem. When I could write full time, I didn't write anything much. (laughs) I was writing less than I had ever written before. And so I started Ally as a small little, you know, this would be a community of us who think about it the way we think about it. And that's when I would have met you, kindred spirits, you know, who, who see this thing in the same sort of way. And of course, it didn't turn out like that at all. It just exploded mm. and expanded. And mm. um, Philip, my co-director and life partner, um, mm. is the person who kind of keeps it all grounded. He mm. he's um, he's not a, a public person, and um, so people don't don't see him. But he is the rock on which Ally stands and has you know it's it's good business practices and stuff is, mm. is down to him. So yes, mm. it is as you say now huge. It's it's global. It's fully global. We have seven territories that we concentrate on. We have a fabulous team. Um, we have amazing advisors who work with mm. us. We have ambassadors now in various territories around the world, and it just just keeps growing. Mm. Uh, it is I mean having witnessed what's happened it's interesting you're talking about yes you wanted to create this community and it sounds like in which you said well yes we have a little hamlet or a village you know that sort of community and it's now continental you know it's just it's just a vast thing but what's really interesting you know and this is some you know, something else from a kind of almost a philosophical point of view that I used to see traditional publishers in that kind of gatekeeping mode of oh yes the the the, the protectors of quality and standards and you know professionalism and all that kind of stuff Wow, I've turned 180 degrees on that because, and I think it's one of the sad things that most of us who are writers uh, kind of feel it's, like, oh, it's a bit of a shame, really, that in a sense, Ally is needed. And in fact, in many ways now, I see the self publishing world and certainly the Alliance of Independent Authors now as being almost kind of the kite mark for quality because the kind of standards, and this was something that was really important to me as I, you know, joined up and everything was that do you know what i i feel like i can do a better job than the people who traditionally published my first book Uh, not just in terms of production quality and design and that kind of stuff but certainly when it comes to stuff like marketing their idea of you know oh yes we'll market your book for you will you hell pardon my french but it's like if i if i hadn't been the kind of person who's a bit gobby online, you know, doesn't mind, you know, creating a bit of a scene. 
My book could have sunk without trace instead of having got to number one in Amazon in its niche category. Let's not get carried away here, folks. You know, I'm not Jeffrey Archer or anyone like that. But in, in its niche, because of the hard work and what I'd learned through the Alliance of Independent Authors and the support I got from other people, it's like, yeah, this, this is the best way to do it. And sure enough, it, it did, did produce results. And I think this is a really important thing for creatives is that, uh, as you're saying, many creatives, they love the creative process. They love doing the thing in the same way as in psychology, doing the work, you know, and then you produce something at the end of it. Oh, isn't that wonderful? But you can create the most wonderful novel or poem or video or podcast in the world. But if no one hears about it. <laughs> right you might as well have not done it in a sense other than from the the personal satisfaction so this role that the alliance of independent authors plays i think is um fundamentally to the good of the creative world and i think that's something you should be absolutely proud of orna that this you know you went through your dark night of the soul about starting it at all who could have known it where it would end up and goodness knows where it's going to go from here but you must feel quite chuffed about it I would have thought I am super proud <laughs> you know I really am but uh, it's you know everybody is uh, I hope and because it isn't about me uh, really mm. everybody says that but I so mean this you know it mm. its power is in the fact that it's it's like ally as I conceived uh, the short name for us mm. was it's a capital A-L-L for all, and then it's a small mm -hmm. I for the individual. And and that's what our, our our name has meant to us. And I, you know, I couldn't be more happy uh, about how that has happened and how mm -hmm. everybody helps everybody, you know. So mm -hmm. every day, no matter where you are, and such is the nature now, the fragmented nature of the information that we get from the internet and various other places that every single day, no matter how experienced you are, and I, myself included, I learn something every day from mm -hmm. Ally, as well as obviously passing on what I have learned. So, and that just goes on and on and on. And um, yeah, I, we're 10 years next April and we'll be celebrating, wow. yes, in London. Um, and you'll be there, I hope, Ooh, and yeah. in person. I hope all of that, you know, yeah, nothing yeah. comes along to derail <laughs> us doing that because yeah. uh, some of the team are coming over from the, the States for it. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's, it, it'll be a special um decade because you know marking the decade because yeah i do feel absolutely wonderful about about ally and you know going to work at ally every day is an absolute joy and mm. i never know what's going to happen yeah. what's going to turn up on my desk and um what's going to be happening in the forum or wherever um, but yeah. it's always interesting always fascinating yeah uh now, this leads us on nicely because you, you created this organization uh, that is a reflection of your own passion for supporting creativity. And uh, this is really important because actually the subject of creativity itself is something that interests you and you know over the years you've done you know I've you've mentored writers and poets and so forth uh on a one-to-one -one basis now you hey welcome to the club you've got a patreon gig where you do stuff via patreon uh and you support people who are interested in uh historical novels in poetry and in creativity that kind of thing 
um, which is a really interesting switch. But of course, as someone who myself, I set up a Patreon about three or four years ago now, I've lost track of time. Um, just like, hell, I've no idea how this is going to work, but come on, let's just take a step into the dark and see what happens. And hey, it's still going a few years later. So um, tell us a bit about that decision, Orna, about uh, your decision to go to uh, a platform like Patreon to support creators rather than doing, how else do one put it, the old fashioned way of just kind of face to face consultation? Yeah, because um, I could no longer time wise if, you know, if I wanted to get my own. So while Ally has been absolutely brilliant and I wouldn't change a thing mm. as it has grown, there have been times where I have found it difficult to get uh, my own work in there. And it's very mm. important to me to keep writing fiction and poetry um, mm. and publishing fiction and poetry. Mm. So I have been writing, but not publishing as much as I would have liked to, particularly on the fiction side. Mm. So um, that is kind of sorted now in the sense that, as I said, there's a fantastic team in place. And But when it came, I didn't want to let go of that um, mentoring bit, but I couldn't afford the time to do one to one. Mm. It was just impossible. And so what Patreon allowed was for me to bring together, particularly in this arena. So there are people who are there just to kind of get a, a monthly poetry chapbook or whatever from mm. me, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about my creative plan, publishing, mm. the planning patrons. What they are there for is it's just a small group. It's limited and mm. we have a monthly workshop and mm. we look at some of the things that arise when you set about self-publishing at a deeper level, they're workshops, they're not webinars. They they do the work and each yeah. person who comes is at a different stage. So use mm. tools like free writing, like the finding flow process, like, you know, highlighting the importance of creative play and creative rest as well as creative work, you know, the mm. creative, uh, creative production, it doesn't respond well to di you know, disciplinarian every of yeah. course you have to have some routine and containers but yeah. you know a heavy-handed pushing yourself um mm. only takes you a little bit of the way that's not mm. the fastest way to go at all and certainly not the funnest way to go mm. so yeah and it's also about marrying the creative spirit with money because mm. I have found a huge number of of authors have a have a kind of an issue integrating those two things together. Mm. And very often one of the reasons they're not selling is that they haven't done what's necessary to sell, not because as they think, oh, I'm too lazy, I'm not disciplined enough. It's because there is a resistance there and they're not mm. aware of that resistance. And so yeah, the the this facility allows a small group of us to get together and go deep. So mm. um, and I enjoy it very much and it keeps me in touch with that aspect of myself, which, as you said, you know, it's not just something I'm interested in. If I had to actually point to the font of it all, it's it's the creative spirit and the creative mm. um, spirit at work in life as well as in in yeah. um, fiction and poetry that is inspires me most of all all the time interestingly as you probably know a uh, few shows ago i interviewed a chap called dan holloway who you know very well 
Uh, we both know because he's an ally member and in fact he helps out a lot with the organization and doing newsletter and that kind of stuff fascinating guy and he and i talked a bit about creativity and he has a very interesting kind of view on creativity and quite an intellectual view on creativity and creativity in business and and that kind of stuff now what I found interesting about you is that you've uh, you, you're about to kind of launch a bit of a course, aren't you? Called Finding Flow Process, and of course, as soon as I hear the word flow, my ears prick up. I'm brandishing a book here, uh, Finding Flow by uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. That's how it's pronounced. You can pronounce it. I, that's because <laughs> I've got the audible version as well, where I assume they went to extraordinary lengths to pronounce his name right, and I've written it down phonetically on a post-it note. Mihai Chick sent me hi, guys. Uh, he wrote a, a wonderful book called Flow and this other book called Finding Flow. And for those of you who may not know, uh, flow is a, a kind of a creative state where you can go really deep into something, where, you know, usually something creative, and you almost kind of become unaware that time is passing. This is something that is a great joy in my life. You know, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that I get to do creative things for a living, whether it's graphic design, whether it's illustration, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, whatever. And you can experience it if you're in the middle of a conversation with someone. I'm kind of experiencing it now with you, Orny, you know, where you're just, uh, time is irrelevant and you are just in this, it's almost a trance-like state where the creativity is just coming out. And I know that it happens to me where I'm sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll lean back in my chair and, oh, hang on a minute, it's gone dark outside. You know, how, how much time has actually passed? You know, my coffee's gone cold that kind of thing but it's obviously it's a it's a really precious thing for any creative person it's also massively beneficial in mental health terms and uh, i can say to anyone who wants to try something different if they've been trying different methodologies to help themselves you know uh finding activities in which you can discover your own flow is an incredibly powerful thing now uh, i think on this is where i want you to step in because obviously this is something that fascinates you too and you have your own kind of views on creativity and how you can find and express and explore uh, your own creativity tell us about this this thing that you're developing yeah so um you're absolutely right. I'm fascinated by flow and how it is, how we foster it. And, you know, we talk a lot about beating writer's block and things like that. And and there is a lot of talk in, in our community about overcoming resistance, self-sabotage, all these, these kinds of terms. And these are seen as the enemy of flow and we go to war on them with discipline. So that's one approach and it's very popular. And I love Stephen Pressfield, for example, for lots of things. But sure. I but in this area, I feel, you know, this kind of the war of art doesn't yeah. speak to me as somebody, you know, when I when I got cancer and I know your own approach is, is was similar. It was very I wasn't going to go to war with cancer, which is also <laughs> another thing. People yeah. always talk about cancer in terms of battle, you know, yeah, a fight yeah. and a thing. 
for me, it was there. And, you know, my whole philosophy of life was whatever is there is supposed to be there. Whatever mm. is there is is the way. And mm. so that was my response there. And it's the same whenever a creative challenge arises. So I agree with absolutely everything you said, except I go, I've gone further with this whole flow thing. For me, mm. it's not about particular activities. It's about a state. And it is a state, I call it the create state or the creative state. It's a state that could be brought to anything and even the most challenging thing. But, you know, trying with very challenging things at the beginning is not a good idea, but you can practice finding flow in very simple things mm. and make it your your practice, your habit, your way of meeting whatever presents itself in life mm. or in your creative work, because Creative work is effectively having a challenge and meeting it mm. to and creating something from that. So as soon as you want something, there's a gap between where you are and that thing. Otherwise, mm. you wouldn't want it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And the finding flow process is about aligning. It's different parts of you will have a different response to that thing you want. One part of you wants it. There will be another part. Uh, and immediately that will kind of rise up because you're not there yet and that mm. part is looking after you in its own way and it wants certain things for you and it it will come up in the form of anxieties mm. caring messages but which we often don't want to hear especially if we're in disciplinarian yeah, mode so yeah. we repress we suppress yeah. we say no i don't want to think about that stop this is self-sabotage get on with it and we're mm. strengthening this part that wants and we're suppressing the other but it doesn't work as you said this other mm. will will jump up and it will jump up in the form of of resistance or self-sabotage you see the same thing happening um, in addiction yeah. if somebody wants to not do something and yeah. it's exactly the same thing happens you've got these two sides of yourself two parts of yourself at war with each other mm. so the finding flow process is about turning them around towards each other getting them communicating with each other mm. integrating and aligning them and then you can move forward with no part of yourself holding you back Mm. there's uh there's so many things i'm desperately kind of scribbling scribbling notes here uh so many things are occurring to me here uh one of the things is that we as human beings tend to have a negativity bias so we're much much quicker to put ourselves down say oh no you're, oh, you're wasting your time even trying this and and that negativity bias of course arose as a form of self-protection you know it's uh there's the there's the story isn't there about the 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 uh, walking past the forest and seeing a tiger at the edge of the forest but the tiger actually turns out to be a stone you know a boulder and it's just the shadows from the palm trees that are you know putting the stripes on the boulder but our initial instincts oh there's a tiger at the edge of the forest oh don't go into the forest there's a tiger at the edge of the forest and it takes more careful investigation to understand mm, it's just a boulder but of course if one day is a tiger <laughs> right you can be in trouble so hence the negativity bias that kind of warning us that always oh, big and bad and nasty out there and this is one of the things that can lead of course to resistance in creative terms as well i mean one of the things that i'm sure you you come across and perhaps in in terms of what you talk to people about money and creativity people could be scared of success people can 
feel like oh money and creativity is a bit of a dirty combination isn't it isn't it supposed to be art and creativity is supposed to be this pure thing oh which is somehow up on a up on a mount olympus or something and money is this nasty nasty stuff down the bottom and never the twain shall meet so that's kind of interesting. The other thing is that immediately kind of the language you're using there, uh, Orna, is reminding me of a kind of mindfulness practice where we can become overwhelmed with fears and doubts and all kinds of negative emotions. And so what mindfulness helps us to do is to kind of separate ourselves from those negative thoughts and understand that you know, we are not our thoughts. You know, these emotions and negative thoughts that are coming towards us like a tidal wave. And I had a recent experience, actually, which I talked about in the introduction to the show. But if we can create a distance between us and those negative thoughts, we can see, ah, that doesn't have to be the whole story. And I know you're interested in Eastern philosophy and so forth. So tell us a bit about how that has perhaps influenced what you're talking about here. Yeah, I think it's hugely influenced it. And, um, you know, that that ability to take that step back and observe the, the, the thought is is core. But what we often do, and, and this is what I mean by going a, a little bit further with it, um, and this is new to me. So this mm. is why I'm it's not really a course that I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, to be honest. <laughs> but I'm doing <laughs> I, I, as yet. It hasn't firmed up into anything yeah. in particular, but I am working with it with these this small group of people. And what it mm. does is it it not only which I've been doing for years through meditation and mindfulness practice, not only is it about awareness of the, let's say, negative thought mm. and let's make it a negative thought for the purposes of this. It's going a step further and saying to the negative thought, okay, I hear you. Mm. I'm listening. What are you saying? And then what's underneath what you're saying? And um, I'm sorry for suppressing you. I'm sorry for pushing you away because a lot of actually in, in the community, in the mindfulness and spirituality community, and particularly those um communities that have been influenced by law of attraction thinking and mm. and um, high vibration thinking everybody is so concerned to keep their vibration up and to mm. think positive thoughts that mm. the negative is being repressed in a serious way mm. and and that you know there is no part of us that doesn't care about us yeah. that doesn't care about our survival if we think mm. it's a tiger like you say don't go into the woods because yeah. that has to be there and at, at a much, you know, at the level of writing novels, which isn't half as dangerous, um, <laughs> or, or writing poetry, you know, when you're getting a negative sort of feeling, it is a fear of some kind. And our typical thing is, oh, feel the fear and do it anyway. Get on, yeah, put the book yeah. out there, take the storm. You know, there's no storm at all. Nobody's listening. But, um, yeah. you know, actually, the, the, this approach d doesn't do that. This approach says when you feel the fear, says, OK, fear. Hi, mm. thank, thank you for showing up. Mm. What are you saying? Um, what's what's going on here? And so mm. the, the supposition or the belief um, and every way that we approach life has a belief system built into it, whether we realize it or not. The mm. belief here is that whatever is rising for you should be. 
mm. whatever wants your attention, whatever's coming up for you wants your attention. Mm. And our attention is very often, and this is where the mindfulness, so it's a very long way around to say, this is where the mindfulness comes in. Mm. Our attention is very often being dragged away by things that we don't, you know, we haven't engaged with. We're not mm. paying attention. Mm. We're not aligned with our intention we're just kind of regurgitating thoughts that we've had many times before um or you know just going around the track or not even realize that we're thinking so finding flow is a very different understanding of creativity to dan holloway's as you say which is a very intellectual and a really fascinating i read his book and i loved it and learned from it but this is very practical this is very yeah. experiential. This is very much about today creating the day you want to create and within mm. it creating the things you want to create mm. while enjoying yourself thoroughly and mm. um, not pretending everything in the garden is rosy because it never is. Yeah. Um, it's about the perfection of imperfection, but yeah. that you can still have alignment, you can still have flow, you can still have that sense of being creatively alive, no matter yeah. what's going on. Yeah, I, I another scribbled note. Uh, dealing with these uh, negative thoughts, I'm, I'm, I'm. There's a book by Tara Brack called Radical Acceptance. And the story of the Buddha sitting down to tea with Mara, Mara being the kind of the monster, the beast, the nasty thing, and accepting the presence of Mara. And instead of resisting, running away, fighting, just having the courage to say, okay, sit down with me, let's talk. And this uh, is kind of an inner dialogue, isn't it, about uh, dealing with what that resistance is getting to the bottom of what it is because this is something i've certainly learned at a personal level in the last couple of years and the cancer and all the rest of it is like yeah you can't run away from this stuff it's caught up with you so you might as well just sit down stay stay as calm as you can and the things i've learned about how to stay calm about this stuff and examine what it is that's actually going on what is the nature of this fear this resistance now this to me in creativity terms sounds like it's quite remarkable i mean so when how did you arrive at this kind of conclusion i don't know (laughs) 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 i actually don't know a lot of reading a lot of observing a lot of looking inwards and looking outwards i suppose if i had to find a you know because of my um my day job with ally i see a huge number of creators at work not just writers and um, obviously mostly writers, mm. but also um, there are services now, as you say, authors are expanding what they're doing now into mm. we've, we've identified 10 different business models that authors are working these days. Mm. So they're expanding into all sorts of activities like you doing your podcasting and, and, and all sorts of other things. But also we work with um, services like Amazon and Ingram Spark mm. and Kobo and Apple and these people who are involved 
and and then down to the local freelance editor you know all kinds yeah. of services who service the writing and publishing community so in observing the creative people at work within these services and within the writing mm-hmm. community and in observing myself i'm getting older and a bit wiser maybe mm-hmm. as to what's really going on um it just seemed to me that i i was it was a concern i was slightly i am concerned about the positive thinking movement not because mm. i don't like positivity i do i've done the clifton mm. strengths it's way up there on my yeah. own kind of personal thing i am a positive person by nature and that's fine um and i have my moments like everybody too and that is also fine and my point is that false positivity you know if you're really feeling positive that's that's terrific and not everything doesn't need to be right for you to feel positive in fact mm-hmm. if everything was perfect there'd be nothing to feel positive about you'd just be sitting there in in, yeah. in nirvana um <laughs> it's false positivity is rampant and yeah. people beating themselves up underneath it that's the yeah. other thing and this is where it links in with money as well so it's all interlinked that's what i i see so clearly now in a way that i wouldn't have seen when i was younger yeah um you know the, the, the it's all interlinked it's all energies yeah. at play with each other and we're ma- we make it very hard for ourselves because we are hard on ourselves and or on some aspects of ourselves. So these parts of ourselves, we give ourselves a hard time. And if you Mm -hmm. listen to yourself talk, there is a part of yourself that you don't like, that you're kind of beating up. Mm -hmm. And we can be quite abusive. You know, we were talking at the beginning about the, the toxic family thing inside ourselves we can be really really hard on ourselves and so that's what this process is about it's about softening up and Mm. giving all the parts space and place Mm. to express themselves Mm. and then you have a real positivity it's not an enforced kind of thing that's slapped down on top of stuff yeah so i mean this hey we're bringing in another aspect of stuff that i've learned the hard way in the last year self-compassion of course this is the, what, you, what you were describing there that i've always called the devil on my shoulder that told me i was crap at everything and including my passing comment there about my poetry which it's all right my poems are all right i'll concede that i'll concede Yay, that, like, I'll concede that they're all right few of them are quite good few of them are quite good but anyway the yes that the self-compassion and the devil on our shoulder that just wants to shred our efforts our creative efforts and uh and that can just prevent you getting anywhere i i you know there's we we could talk for ages we, we've got a little bit of time left and I, there's something i do want to bring in because it's something that i know that you're interested in there was a guy called arthur kirstler uh, who wrote a seminal work about the act of creation. And uh, I'm just going <clears> to <throat> read a quote here. According to Kirstler, many bisociative creative breakthroughs, gosh, that's a big <laughs> word, occur after a period of intense conscious effort directed at the creative goal or problem in a period of relaxation when rational thought is abandoned, like during dreams and trances. And this is, of course, a where it kind of differs from Dan Holloway's approach, which is very much kind of, you know, intense effort produces this plus this, which creates a dialectic new thing, which then does something else. And I know that you're quite interested in this notion of creativity emerging in an almost unconscious state. Do you want to say a bit about that, Orna? Yes, um, I definitely feel that, you know, it comes up through us. 
And that is my experience. That's how I feel it. And I also completely agree with Dan and Poincaré. I think the mathematician gives the best um, description of that, that sense of, you know, it's relaxation on its own won't do it. It's the Mm. combination of the intense concentration and focus. And then when you relax, and that's why when, you know, you're in the shower, you get your best ideas or when you're driving and you've rested the conscious mind for a little while and up bubbles, the deeper idea, the truer voice, the real Mm. thing that's going on. It has a feeling about it. And Koisler, I love what I love most about his work is is this thing that he coined called the ah, aha or ha ha. So in that moment of of, you know, you know, you you experientially know your body knows that this level of thought or idea or whatever you want to call it is deeper than your everyday thoughts Mm -hmm. about this topic up to now and how you know is one of three ways either it's an ah a sort of um uh, moment of of deep relaxation and integration and alignment or it's aha it's a eureka moment of of insight and awareness or it's a haha and you just laugh at how how did i not know i know i know this why am i you know so it's one of those three things he called them ah, ah, and, and ha, ha, which I think is very clever. And yeah. um, so, yes, it's not about either or. And that's the most important thing. And, and that's in finding flow and in everything I do. It's always about integration and alignment. It's always mm. about bringing things that seem to be opposites together. And, mm. and that then you have once it's once you've got integration and alignment, you've got ease and you've got flow. You've got yeah. fun and you've got rest built in. It's no longer this this kind of disciplinarian push, this whipping yourself with with. And sometimes we do need to whip ourselves, you know, maybe. And that's mm-hmm. OK if we understand what's going on. But if we're constantly drawing on only that energy, mm-hmm. we will stop. It isn't yeah. enough because the challenges we set ourselves as creators need us by definition i think what we're actually doing if we would let ourselves and if we knew enough about it and we're only really learning a lot about creativity in this generation with Mm. our ability to scan the brain and see what's going on and to have these conversations across the wide creative community think of how isolated creatives were in the past this is another one of my topics in, in in my historical novels you know there were a few in each town there was one Mm. in each village you know there was one maybe family or are in in some families and they felt isolated and as soon as possible they wanted to get away from their family get away from their village go to the big city and find some other people who looked at life like they do now we're all over the internet we can reach each other and we can have these conversations so we're only really beginning to understand the the creative you know, what's going on for creatives and multi-passionate people. Uh, it was quite interesting, Arthur Kersler, because uh, uh, in his the, that book, The Act of Creation, he actually focuses on humour, uh, doesn't he? Uh, it's quite interesting, you know, how a joke works, basically, how a funny story works. And so the the fact that he used this ha and ha and ha-ha thing is uh, is quite witty, actually. I mean, you know, a nice little intellectual joke. Um, 
Before we wrap up, you've mentioned a couple of uh, times now what you call free writing, which is really rather important, I think, in the whole process of, of creativity from your perspective. Could you, for people who know nothing about this, could you kind of explain what you mean by free writing? Yeah, free is an acronym. It, it stands for fast, raw, exact and easy. So fast in that you write as fast as you possibly can um, by hand, preferably uh, if you learned to write by hand, which most of us still do. Um, raw in the sense that you accept whatever is arriving and you don't worry about punctuation and all the things that your English teacher made a big fuss about when you were in school. Mm. Um, and exact but easy means exact in that you're drawing on the precise details of your own life. You're not regurgitating the cliche or whatever you're talking mm. about, uh, you know, and if you're describing something, you don't say like the bowl of fruit, you'll say the purple grapes, the green apple and, the, you know, and maybe more than that, whatever comes as you are writing fast, but you give yourself the instruction to be specific. Mm. Um, but overall, that it's an easy thing. You, It's an opening. It's an allowing. It's the letting the words come through. And the idea, mm. again, is is what we've been discussing here, getting beyond the conscious mind, mm. which when it comes to writing can become quite self-conscious yeah, and yeah. stop us. And so the more you can get used to writing freely, the more that when it comes to crafting something for publication, you can draw on that skill. Yeah. And one thing I would kind of add to that is, it uh, took me a long time to realize, don't censor yourself. I think a lot of people are immediately they get their kind of editor side of the brain engaged as well and are censoring what they're writing and it's like you know if you want to write a four-letter word while you're blurting it out to the page just let it come you know uh as, as someone who's been a professional editor for quite a long time i i see this all the time and i've experienced it myself where i'm i write a paragraph and then i go back and correct that paragraph it's like no don't do that write the whole thing then you know stick it in a drawer for a bit then go back and do the editing and stuff but it can be the bane of many people i think who particularly were brought up you know in a particular kind of education system where everything's got to be perfect all the time you know Absolutely. don't do that folks don't do that folks because that's you're, you're not revealing your true self if you do that i think that's the thing you're revealing this kind of received idea of what the writing should be rather than what you actually need to get out to the Oh, absolutely. Um, okay, we're drawing to a close here, Orna. And we've there's so many things I could have talked for an hour on each of these topics, you know. But um, here we are, you know, in this what I'm now calling the post-traditional publishing world. The Alliance of Independent Authors is growing like topsy. Uh, you're going to be president of the world soon, you know. I'm fairly <laughs> certain. Uh, but for some, you know, for um, the the final point is a lot of creatives like me find and a, a mutual friend of ours, Joanna Penn, who's uh, the creativepen.com online, brilliant website, brilliant woman, who see this as, wow, I can do anything. I can try anything. I can go anywhere. And I know she's doing all sorts of stuff. We're getting publishing rights in Guatemala or wherever it happens to me be. You know, she's doing extraordinary things, showing people that, you know, your only limit is your own imagination. So there are there's a core of us who are like, wow, this is amazing. I can do audio, I can do video, I can do writing, I can do publishing, I can do this, I can do that. Whereas, of course, there are other people who are just kind of 
overwhelmed by the sheer variety the kind of people who you kind of described as with kind of the the local wise person writing in their hut in somewhere in Clonmar or somewhere in Ireland you know and they emerge and blinking into this world of oh my god it's all blinking lights and I am terrified by the possibilities um so what kind of advice reassurance could you give someone who's kind of just embarking on a creative career now or you know whether it's a full-time career or as many people do it's kind of what the americans are called a side hustle you know alongside their day job what kind of advice would you give to someone who wants to express their creativity but is kind of terrified at the number of options i would say at all times, you'll only your attention will filter in and out what you need if you stay deeply connected to yourself. So, you know, I could give loads and loads of different advice and tips and things. And, you know, the Alliance does that. But I mm-hmm. think the ultimately the, the main bit of advice I would like to give people is look inwards before you look outwards. And I don't mean for your writing, because you will do that by definition. You cannot but help you know do that but for your publishing look inwards and think about who it is you want to serve and what you want to be known for and engage deeply with that question through your free writing through your finding flow process through whatever your own methods are Mm. engage deeply engage deeply with that and then trust your attention trust the wants that rise in you trust the you know you feel that little spark of electricity that is the thing that you're interested in you cannot it's impossible to even see it all now even for me and I, you know, with all the brilliant sources of information I have in 10 years experience of looking at this world, it's impossible. So for somebody starting out, forget it. That's not what it's about. It's about you and the people you're going to serve and creating that relationship and deepening and growing that relationship over time. So it's a long term thing. Don't go into this, you know, with a short term goal of making a million or any of that. Which I hear. <laughs> well, you hear it. Yeah, you do. You <laughs> it do. is possible. It is a ha ha moment, but you do hear it. Yeah. Um, that's not what it's about for you mm. creatively or commercially. Um, if if what you want to do is write and publish and reach readers. It's a long-term thing. It may well be a lifetime thing, but Mm. yeah, take your time moment by moment. You know what you need. You know what you want. Trust yourself. Yeah. So finally, Orna, for yourself, you know, here you are trusting yourself and your plans. What's coming up next personally for you? Um, well, I am, as I said, um, I will be carrying on with Ally for another 10 years, probably, yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly for some years to come, um, but all the time building out a team. So I don't want Ally to be about me now. I want it to stand up on its own legs and walk mm. by itself. So that's my job, I think, for the next number of years is to create the structures where when I'm gone, it will still be there because I don't see the need for it as disappearing anytime soon. Um, So that's one thing that's kind of on the ally side of things. And then on the side of my own um, writing and publishing, writing, I will carry on writing historical fiction and poetry. There's enough there for 10 lifetimes. I have so many, <laughs> so many ideas that I, I, I know I won't even get to them all. Yeah. So that will just kind of carry on nicely as it always does. And with publishing, I'm getting very interested in AI and yeah. uh, as a tool. 
as a creative tool and I'll be exploring that in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's a big subject. Definitely a whole podcast could be d dedicated to that and has been, as I know. Orna, fantastic. Where can people find you online? So I'm ornaross.com for my own fiction and poetry and the um, it's allianceindependentauthors.org for the Alliance. Fantastic. And I'll put those links in the show notes underneath. Orna, thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. And as I said, oh, the frantic notes here. Oh, we could talk more about this and more about that and more about... Uh, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much. Uh, maybe sometime, not in 10 years' time, perhaps before that, we get you back on the show to talk some more about what you're doing. Sure. Love to, Henry. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks. Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. Episode 10 of Relaxation on the Beach. Today, we're going to have a bit of fun. I think that most people associate meditation with all serious stuff. Difficult thoughts. Handling tricky emotions well it's really good for that but sometimes you know you just kind of need to give yourself a break and enjoy the process itself so today we're going to try that okay so do as you usually do Find a comfortable position, standing, sitting, sitting cross-legged on a cushion, lying down, wherever you like, and with your eyes closed, or with them left kind of half open, a kind of musty gaze, not focused on anything in particular. And today we're going to start, as usual, with a couple of really nice big breaths, a count of four in and pause at the top for four and then slowly let that breath out to a count of eight. Are you ready? So, breathing in, two, three, four, and hold, two, Three, four, and out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And in. Two, three, four. Hold. Two, 
and out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Now what we're going to do is a little body scan to make sure that you're completely relaxed and feeling good. So we're going to start at the top of your head on your scalp. Just notice if there's any kind of twitchy, itchy stuff going on there. And if there is, just apply a kind of relaxing balm. Imagine that you've got someone who's brilliant at head massages. And relax the top of your head. And then we're going to take a look at our foreheads. Got any wrinkles in your forehead? Any tension lines? If so, see if you can... Kind of consciously smooth out your forehead. Get rid of those wrinkle lines. And move down your face. Any tension in your cheeks or jaw? Good way to get rid of any tension here is just to do a little smile. Just let the corners of your mouth just turn up a bit which tends to relax the muscles of your face and jaw. Okay. So you've got a nice relaxed face and head. And let's move down to your neck. I know I carry a lot of tension in my neck. Like many of you, perhaps, I... I have a desk job, effectively. I'm a graphic designer, so I'm staring at my Apple Mac all day and forget oh i really ought to move around more so if you've got any tension in the neck and shoulders oh yeah just imagine that yeah someone's giving you a really nice soothing neck and shoulder massage there you go feeling good move down onto your shoulders top of your arm, just relaxing everything as you go down, any tension in your chest or abdomen, again just let, this is where the breathing can really help, any tension there just give, allow yourself a, a couple of Extra deep breaths in and out slowly. And really feel the movement of the breath. Really focus on the movement of the breath as it comes in, fills your lungs, feel that diaphragm filling up, and then gradually pushing it out. Follow the breath all the way out. The diaphragm, lungs, throat, nose, and right out through the nostril. 
kind of focus on that point where you feel the breath the most. Is it in your diaphragm? Is it in your chest? Does your lungs fill and deflate? Or is it at the nostrils? Just follow the breath and see where you feel it the most and focus on that. Now we can move further down and check our legs, our thighs, glutes, any tension there. And again, just if necessary, make some adjustments to your position to just make sure you are completely relaxed. And then down through your knees and calves. Just making sure everything is really lovely and soft and relaxed. Down through your ankles. Any tension there, any little niggles. And your feet. And your toes. So now you're totally relaxed from head to toe. You're focusing on your breath as it flows in and as it flows out. Just keep your attention wherever you feel the breath the most. And now I want you to think about something good that's happened to you. It might be something that's happened lately. Maybe it's to do with your relationship. Maybe it's to do with something you've done, an activity that you really love. It could be, I don't know, what do you like doing? Painting a picture? Flower arranging? Maybe you've been to the movies and seen a really good film. Maybe you've watched something on the television that made you laugh. Maybe you've been at a social gathering where seeing people who you don't see very often has made you feel really good. Maybe someone's paid you a compliment. Could be about anything. Could be about the way you look. Could be about some work you've done. It could be about something you've done for someone else could just be out of the blue. Maybe this good thing was a recent thing. Or maybe it's something fantastic that's happened to you in the past. Some kind of achievement or some kind of happy event. Maybe it's a memory of time spent with someone you care about. Whatever it is, 
Bring it to mind. Drink in that experience of something that made you happy. And as you're thinking about it, just continue to gently breathe in and out. Focusing your attention on the breath, wherever you feel it the most. And perhaps you can kind of imagine feel of the warm sun on your skin as you're imagining and remembering this happy time this time when you felt really good and especially you felt really good about yourself And so if you ever suffer from self-doubt or negative feelings about yourself, I want you to kind of take this happy thing, this moment where you felt good about yourself, and kind of put it in a little box in your mind. box to which you have the key so if ever you feel troubled or challenged you can unlock this little box and let these happy feelings out and that feeling of warmth and sunshine and allow yourself to drink in all those good feelings about you, about anyone else who was there, and help yourself to feel good about yourself again. Okay. So now, in your mind, you can imagine there's maybe a little secret cupboard or cubby hole. And you can take these precious thoughts and put them in that safe place in your mind. A place only you know. A place where you can go to retrieve those precious thoughts. And as you're putting this little box in that cupboard, I want you to keep smiling, keep feeling good, because you know that those memories are safe and secure and available to you whenever you need them. Okay, 
so now let's keep that smile in the corner of our mouth as we take a couple more really deep breaths breathing in two three four and hold two three four and out two three four five six seven eight and in two three four and hold two three four and out two three four five six seven eight and so now breathe normally again nice and deep and slow you might want a bit of a stretch wiggle your fingers and toes and slowly open your eyes and get ready to face the day again thank you for spending this precious time with me until next time be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player, such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head, where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you.